Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. Happy to have you here on another action-packed week in the NFL. The NFL, by the way, knows no offseason. There will never be an offseason. This has been a startling uh, offseason in and of itself. But as one general manager said the other day, he said, man, I'm more tired uh, right now than I would be during a regular season week. So there's a lot going on right now. But anyway, I'm going to be joined later in the podcast by Urban Meyer, uh, the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. We recorded a, I don't know, 30 to 35 minute discussion uh, the other day. Uh, wrote about it a lot in my column this week, uh, but you'll hear from Urban in a little bit. Uh, but for now, uh, my friend, uh, Paul from NBC Sports, we're going to have a discussion on some of the uh, some of the events that make this not on off season. But Paul, how are you doing? Doing well. Uh, as I was reading your article uh, last night and then again this morning, I'm wondering when you woke up last Friday morning, you got to lunchtime. What was your focus of this week's article going to be before it all went down? Well, my whole thought was um, I was going to write a lot on Urban Meyer, and I had no intention. I mean, Urban Meyer was going to be the lead to the column, and if some news happened. Uh, over the weekend, I've written about it, probably not very much because my conversation with Meyer was pretty wide-ranging. So, um, but when that happened, when the two trades happened uh, within 26 minutes on Friday afternoon, that obviously changed everything. And so I, I sort of split the column between Urban Meyer and the craziness that happened. <clears throat> So let's get right into that craziness. I mean, now three days later, Peter, I mean, people know the details. I think now it's the the analysis of why the teams did what they did and maybe trying to figure out what they're going to do with this capital. So let's begin with San Francisco. Uh, they pay a heavy price to move up to three, and people still wondering why. I mean, we're assuming a quarterback, but why give up so much to get up so high? You know, Paul, as I – did some research on this and some reporting over the weekend. That was a question that was very, very difficult for me to figure out right at the beginning. Because if one month before the draft, um, a team like San Francisco is going to offer you uh, 
the twelfth pick in the draft, plus two future first rounders and a third rounder. Well, the way I think about it is that offer is not going away. So why don't you just use that offer if you're Miami to try to do better and to work with some teams like Carolina, like Denver, who might really be interested coming up to number three. But what I found out is that uh, here's, here's how I think it went down. San Francisco made an offer because the 49ers wanted to get up to number three. And they were haggling over the terms of it. And I don't think for a long time that San Francisco's offer was what this final offer was. I think San Francisco's offer was a lesser offer. And finally, they just said to Chris Greer, uh, the general manager of the Miami Dolphins, listen, we're going to blow you out of the water right now with an offer that if – you accept it. That's great. That's fine. If not, we got to move on and we're going to try to find somebody else to trade with. And so I think when they, I, I believe, Paul, that, you know, the offer was something like the 12th pick in the draft, uh, one next year, and then something else. And it became an extra one in 2020. And our next one in 2023, excuse me. And I think that's what San Francisco did. They sweetened the pot to the point where there's no way that anybody else, because as I illustrated in my column, look, uh, in both huge trades uh, of recent vintage, if you look at uh, what the um, what the Atlanta Falcons paid Cleveland to move up in 2011, I think, uh, to get Julio Jones. It was not as rich of a trade moving up uh, 21 spots in the first round as the trade moving up nine spots for San Francisco was. And Patrick, the Patrick Mahomes deal uh, with the uh, uh, Kansas City Chiefs moving up, uh, you know, 17 spots. Uh, to move up from 27 to 10, uh, that wasn't as rich as moving up from 12 to 3. And so, therefore, I think I think San Francisco just figured we are going to try to blow them out of the water, and I think that's exactly what happened. And now after the dust has settled a little bit, I think we're all facing the, these two questions, and it's fun to try and figure out what the answers are going to be. But, Peter, you have number one, who are they going to take at number three, which quarterback? And number two – is Jimmy G really in their plans like they say that he is? So now that the weekend has passed, are you any closer to having a, a strong feeling about either one of those two? I think I know something about both of them, honestly. Uh, I think one of the big things about where the 49ers are, the, the what appears to be a total lack of confidence in Jimmy Garoppolo is mostly, Paul, a lack of confidence based on him missing 23 games due to injury in the last three years. And when he's missed all those games, the 49ers have gone in the toilet. I believe that the 49ers, in a best-case scenario, unless they get blown out of the water 
by an offer, say, from Carolina or Denver or New England for Jimmy Garoppolo that will bring Garoppolo to training camp. He'll probably be the starter this year. And the third pick in the draft will be on the roster as a quarterback. But in an ideal world, he wouldn't play much, if at all, this year. And Garoppolo, if healthy all year, would lead the Niners again to the playoffs. That is what the 49ers really hope can happen. But look, John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan are smart. They, it's You can really never say never because, uh, you know, the Carolina Panthers, I believe, are going to be desperate to try to get Deshaun Watson. So what would happen if they act out of desperation to try to get Jimmy Garoppolo? and want to trade a huge amount to try to go get him. So, you know, I guess we'll see what happens, but I anticipate that Garoppolo goes to training camp with the 49ers. As far as who the Niners will pick, I mean, Chris Sims is, you know, who obviously is an FOS, friend of Shanahan. Um, Jimmy Garoppolo, or he understands that, uh, that there's a very good chance that, Uh, The 49ers are probably right now most interested in Mac Jones of Alabama. As I reported in my column on Monday, that it looks like uh, that Kyle Shanahan and and John Lynch are going to go to Tuscaloosa on Tuesday to watch Mac Jones throw. And then uh, the other uh, top quarter, one of the other top quarterbacks in this draft, Justin Fields at Ohio State, he also works out. this week, uh, on Tuesday, rather, and the 49ers will send um, uh, their assistant GM and uh, two other members, one uh, assistant coach, Rich, uh, Rick uh, Scangarella, and uh, also their director of college scouting. So I, I think they'll be represented at both, but it's kind of telling, isn't it, that the head coach and the general manager are going to one place together. Uh, and you would think that that really has some meaning because this is, you don't get to bring guys in and have them work at your facility anymore. You know, not this year. Um, the NFL has laid out rules as far as that goes. So uh, I think uh, if I had to guess right now that the pick at number three would be Mac Jones. I've heard some people say, or, you know, on social media, they, they express their feeling that they're just going to watch Matt Jones, they being Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch, just as a smokescreen to make everybody believe that they're really interested in it. But I do think that the people who really know quarterbacks and you have the head coach and the GM, they need to stand on the field and watch a quarterback throw. That They're going to give up that much for to go up there and get. I think they need to stand right next to him and see him. And it's kind of ironic. I, I think you know, coincidental in a good way for us that in your conversation with Urban Meyer that, that I listened to, I know that he said how important it is to him to go get as close as he can to a quarterback to actually see the ball and listen to the ball come out of his hands. And I think that's why Kyle and John will be in Tuscaloosa and not Columbus. You know, if you were going to be, if you're the head coach of a team, and you've watched tape of a guy and you're not going to have an opportunity to uh, have a lot of personal exposure to that guy. And, and look, we don't know right now if, if, uh, if 
Mac Jones is going to be the guy or not. But if you basically uh, take your 2021, 2022, and 2023 first-round picks and devote them to getting one player, wouldn't you like to see that player in person? Exactly. Wouldn't you like to be around him a little bit? And that's one of the reasons why – I think it's probably going to be Mac Jones. But again, you know, Paul, as we record this, it's Monday afternoon, March 29th. Um, The first round of the NFL draft is almost exactly one month from right now. It's one month and six hours from right now. So there is time for a lot to happen. And so, in my opinion, I I just think right now, when you look at the landscape, it's most logical that Mac Jones is the guy, but um, let's see where the the next four weeks take us. San Francisco's decision to make that bold move to get up there is going to be evaluated how, how that quarterback plays. As for Miami, really the most active team in that half hour, they go from three to 12 back up to six. In the end, they net a future first and some other lower draft assets. Why do you think they were so willing to maneuver and move around to, in the end, move three spots? You know, I think it comes down to this. Um, Because when I first saw both of these trades, I said, oh, my gosh, they got an absolute ransom. They weren't going to draft a quarterback. And they got a ransom to move down nine spots. And then when they moved back up six spots, my reaction was, man, why would you take one first-round pick and trade it away um, when you might need that first-round pick next year to draft a quarterback if Tua blows up, and if he – I mean in a negative way. Um, I think think the biggest biggest thing I look at with this trade is that – and look, I, I've not talked to anybody inside the Dolphins, so I, I, don't, I don't know precisely why they did this. But, Paul, it has to be for one reason and one reason only. Because they weren't going to pick a quarterback at three. There was tremendous value for the third pick in the draft. And so because they weren't going to pick a quarterback – Why not trade that pick to someone who would pick a quarterback, take advantage of the desperation, get a huge uh, ransom for it? And if you think about it, in moving from three to six, they lost a one. But in moving from 12 to six, what the Dolphins did was gain a future first-round pick and a future third-round pick. And at six... I believe what they'll do is they'll take the best pass-catching weapon available. Obviously, if the first three pick quarterbacks, then you have three receivers at tight end, four great offensive prospects. Okay, when you're talking about the tight ends, you're talking about Jamar Chase of LSU and the Alabama duo, Devontae Smith and and, uh, Jalen Waddell, and then Kyle Pitts, the tight end from Florida. All four of those picks are logical, pretty much slam dunk, top 10 in the draft quality picks. And so 
if you're number six, you now know that at, at the most, at the most, two of those four are going to be gone by the time you pick. Like, I feel like uh, the best chance right now is for Atlanta at four to take a quarterback. And Cincinnati at five probably take Mar Chase, who Joe Burrow made beautiful music together with uh, in 2019 in Baton Rouge. So that's how I view it. And again, I might be wrong, but I think if the Miami Dolphins want a big, big weapon, they could have stayed at three and taken any weapon they wanted. Or when you look at it now, they could have traded down three spots, picked up an extra one and an extra three, and still gotten at least one of uh, you know one of those four guys. So that's why I think they did it. Pretty savvy move. And if it plays out the way you drew it out there, Peter, one through five, and that would make perfect sense. They may end up with the exact same thing we got at three. So not just, right. okay, the second best pass catcher, we can live with at six. They might get the exact same player. Philadelphia, Peter, is kind of the other team in this whole thing. There's so much discussion and focus on the Niners and the Dolphins. But the Eagles ending up at 12, where does your mind go with that one? You know, I think Philadelphia, um, they're, they were most interested in being in great position in 2022 in the draft for three reasons. Okay. First reason is, uh, and I think this is really important that this year's draft has so many question marks about it. And some of those question marks involve the simple fact that teams can't scout uh, players in couldn't scout players in 2020 the way they normally would. Campuses were closed. Um, most scouts never went on the road at all during the season and just watched tape. And so right now, if you look at uh, exactly where, you know, what we're talking about, essentially, if you're looking at why Philadelphia chose to go down with so many needs they could have taken a, a left tackle of the future. They could have gotten one of these great weapons. I think they still might be able to do one of those two things because there's four great weapons and two really good tackles in this draft. That's six players. I'll be very surprised if at least one of them is not available at number 12. But this also gives the Eagles the opportunity next year to likely, likely, not, not absolutely, to have three first-round picks next year in a draft that there's going to be a lot more, uh, a, a lot more certainty about, uh, because or certainty about because think about it, you're going to know more about the players next year, and you're also going to know more about Jalen Hurts. You're going to know if you think you might need a quarterback next year, and with the probability of having three ones, assuming that. Carson Wentz played 75% of the snaps in uh, in Indianapolis this year, which would make that pick a one instead of a two next year, then the Philadelphia Eagles could be in very, very good position to get their long-term quarterback if that long-term quarterback is not uh, Jalen Hurts. 
There are some other teams that in the top 10 who are in the quarterback game. They're in this quarterback conversation. Uh, they come up each and every week, it seems like, Peter, when we're sitting here on Monday. And we didn't know the tentacles that were going to touch it with this trade, but we find ourselves at the Jets again, at number two, and Joe Douglas <laughs> and what he may do. So let's kind of treat this trade by looking at some other teams in the top five or in the top six. You can go top 10 if you'd like, but the Jets now, after all this went down on Friday, where do you think it leaves them with their mindset for QB? Um, you know, I'm just like everybody else. It's hard for me to imagine them not taking Zach Wilson of Brigham Young. Look, if, if you're Joe Douglas and what I've heard is that he's telling people I'm not trading this pick, I don't, I'm not getting out of number two. So if you're Joe Douglas and that's your attitude, then what do you really, really want? Okay. What you want is you want one of the quarterbacks. You're not staying there to take Jamar Chase. Um, so you want one of the quarterbacks. So I'd be surprised if they didn't. I'd, I'd be surprised if they traded the pick. Okay. Uh, now I stay where they are and most likely take Zach Wilson. We've talked about the Niners and Jimmy Garoppolo and a potential trade came up a little bit. I think, Peter, anytime you talk about the Jets right now, you got to think about Sam Darnold, and they may potentially trade him. Which one of those two, if John Lynch, if Joe Douglas are open to trading them this next month, which one do you think would command a higher interest? Um, I think the, the most likely scenario, if there's going to be a team that now really tries to get up and is aggressively trying to do so, I think it would be Carolina number eight. It's clear that they want uh, a better quarterback uh, than, uh, uh, than Teddy Bridgewater. And so I think, I think Carolina probably has the most motivation and chance uh, to move up if it's at all possible, but you know what? It may, it may not be possible. Right. Do you think either Garoppolo or Darnold would, would fetch a third round pick right now, or could they consider getting it too? Uh, I think Garoppolo probably is a little more attractive right now than Darnold. I would be surprised if, uh, I would be surprised if, uh, if Darnold is not moved uh, either before or maybe after the draft, just because, you know, in an ideal world, when you think about it, you know, I think, I think Sam Darnold, if Zach Wilson is the pick, you're not going to the playoffs this year. So why have Sam Darnold there? And that's why I think it's most likely he's moved. And, I'm telling you, I think I think the 49ers would rather have Jimmy Garoppolo go to training camp with them than not. And uh, I still think that's the most logical scenario for Jimmy Garoppolo and, uh, you know, and whoever they pick, let's say it's Mac Jones, to both be there for this season in San Francisco. Let's keep that on mind and get to number four with the Falcons here, Peter. If if the Niners, you think, will go Garoppolo and a rookie quarterback at three into training camp through the season, you think the Falcons are thinking the same, quarterback at four, and let Matt Ryan keep playing for a little while? The Falcons have been very, very quiet, very private about 
exactly uh, exactly what they are planning to do. And I think that's because they're still up in the air. But I think it's very likely that they at least investigate hard the quarterbacks. And if they investigate the quarterbacks, I think they're come going to come away wanting either Trey Lance or Mac Jones. Uh, that's just, but that's a gut feeling because the uh, the Atlanta Falcons have not tipped their hands so far. And let's let's jump down because I know you touched on the Bengals, maybe going receiver there at five, and you also mentioned a little bit Carolina at eight and their potential interest with the Jets at two. We've kind of seen what it'll probably take. I mean, to, to swap eight and two and get up probably two future first round picks and maybe a third down the road. You think that, that Joe Douglas would say thanks, but no thanks to that offer that basically got the Niners up to number three? I mean, if he, I think he's already had the chance to get involved in trading and he doesn't want to. So I would be surprised if he, gave away the opportunity to get the quarterback who he wanted to sit at number two to get. And let's say it's not Zach Wilson. Let's say it's Trey Lance. Let's say it's Justin Fields. Whoever it is, he's had the chance to get involved in the trading derby and has not done so. So I doubt that he's going to change his mind. Big part of your podcast is going to be a, a half-hour conversation with Urban Meyer. Uh, we're well aware of the tremendous success he's had in college, and the big story is he's going to try it in the NFL. We don't all get to spend 30 minutes with him, though. And you have done this with so many new coaches uh, throughout the last two, three decades. What was your number one walk-away feeling after you hung up with him? Um, you know, that's an interesting question, Paul. I think my biggest takeaway was that Urban Meyer's been thinking about this for a long time. He uh, had been thinking about this for at least a year before he got seriously involved. He had a conversation a year ago, I think, just a friendly conversation uh, with Shad Khan, the, the owner of uh, the Jaguars. And Shad Khan was not ready to pull the trigger at the time. But... Uh, you know, and I doubt that Shad Khan said, hey, a year from now, I'm going to come and get you. But I, I think Shad Khan basically, uh, I, and, I, and I don't know exactly what the conversation was, but, you know, I think that uh, as well as Shad Khan basically saying, hey, I'm a great admirer of what you've done. But I also think that, that, it was a, a feeling out process for Urban Meyer as well, because he has thought seriously about becoming involved with an NFL head coaching job. So I think that those two factors, the fact that, that Shad Khan, you know, uh, had a chat with him and that Urban Meyer then, uh, you know, had time to think about it and had time to, to basically you know, think about whatever team it might be. And there were other teams that I think contacted him during the course of, uh, say, early January, maybe late December, early January. Um, but I think 
the reason why this one was so interesting to him is because all the resources available, more cap room than any team, the first pick in the draft so they can get Trevor Lawrence. And also, uh, you know, the fact that they have a lot of draft capital available. So it's almost like a blank slate that, that Urban Meyer was going to have so many opportunities to, uh, you know, with such great resources. I think that became uh, something that the more he thought about it, plus it's in an area of the country that he really liked, uh, whatever it is, an hour and a half away, I guess, is Gainesville. His family spent a lot of time in Jacksonville when he was the coach uh, at the University of Florida. From the outside looking in, I always thought a big part of the reason he was interested in that job was the number one pick leading to Trevor Lawrence. I also thought this time of the year, Peter, he would kind of say, oh, you know, we're still in the process. We don't know who we're going to take. He's one of the candidates. But he didn't really leave much doubt or dance around it. I mean, they are they're going right toward Trevor Lawrence and he didn't really deny it. No, that surprised me just a little bit. As a matter of fact, that's I had no intention of leading my column with that. But when he gave me that answer, I said, wow, this guy basically I mean, look, I'd say. 95, 96 percent, everybody was sure at, to that level that Jacksonville was going to take Trevor Lawrence. Well, after reading his comments in my column uh, this week, I'm sure that everybody would say, well, now it's 99 percent, you know. And so uh, I think I think the biggest the biggest thing to take away from that is that, look, he he doesn't see that there's any sense in deluding the public he wants people to get excited about trevor lawrence leading this this team and he wants trevor lawrence to get excited about it too yep he talked a lot about culture and what he learned from bill belichick and how he thinks this will be different from what nick saban went through in his brief tenure there in miami so uh, i've read it uh look forward to, to taking a listen here to your conversation Hey, listen, thanks so much, Paul. Thanks for being with me every week. We have a good time. You got it, Peter. Talk to you soon. So let's get into my conversation now with uh, the new head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars, Urban Meyer. It was a wide-ranging conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. And, hey, look, I've never met Urban Meyer. I still have not shaken his hand. I don't I, – I don't, Urban Meyer and I are – are just Zoom buddies or or streamer buddies, and uh, so that's 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 how I know him so far. But hopefully, uh, you'll get a chance to know him a little better after hearing this conversation. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com. 
T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Happy to be joined by Urban Meyer, the coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars on the podcast. Uh, Urban, welcome. Peter, great to be with you. Thank you. So, you know, you've had a, you've had a really interesting first 10 or 11 weeks as uh, the head coach and, and kind of grand poobah of the Jaguars. And I wonder, you know, you had to make such a huge adjustment, I've thought, from college football to pro football. And even though it's only been a little less than three months, what surprised you so far? Well, really not much has surprised me um, other than the fact you just don't get to be around your players as much. You know, and in college, you got 75 guys rolling through your uh, facility every day in professional sports, professional football. Once that season's over, the next really mandatory thing is mandatory uh, a tra- uh, um, minicamp. Um, and so I just, I'm used to one of my favorite things to do is go down to the weight room and hang out with the players when they're lifting weights. And we have five, maybe 10. And, you know, we got a lot more now. There's about 20 guys rolling around here, but nothing's mandatory. And just, you know, I, I think a lot of people coach for a lot of reasons. Mine is relationship with players. And it's hard to get when you, you know, I talk to them on the phone quite a bit. I have not, I have not had one team meeting. Peter, think about that. I've been the head coach since January. And we have not had a team meeting because we're not allowed. So that, that's the biggest adjustment. When will you first have all your players together? Well, we're still waiting on the COVID protocol, but uh, April 6th is our plan to start phase one, they call it. And that's two hours of uh, football, uh, just meetings, no, no, nothing on the field. And then two hours of training and getting them in shape and, and just getting them strength, strength training, et cetera. So that's April 6th is what we're planning. I thought you had some really interesting comments at the start of free agency um, when, you know, never forget a few years ago, whenever the Denver Broncos signed Brock Osweiler uh, and, or I'm sorry, the Denver Broncos lost Brock Osweiler, the Houston Texans signed him, excuse me. And I remember Bill O'Brien thought it was the most insane thing. This is the guy who's going to be his quarterback. This is your cast in your lot with this guy. And you can't, talk to him before you commit whatever 17 or 18 million dollars a year to the guy and you said and i quote that you thought it was awful tell me why well it's just what you said you know and i put it on the plate i i've talked to so many the thing i have an advantage maybe over most uh is that i've had you know 30 plus whatever players drafted in recent years that have done very well in the nfl and i talked to them and they would like to the free agents would like to come talk to the coach and say, Hey, by the way, how are you going to use me? Tell me about your sports performance. Tell me about, I would like to see the facilities. I would like to meet the person that's going to be in charge of my career and including his position coach. So I, when I said that, I meant the players are telling me that the players want to meet it. it, I know money is going to be the, the bottom line, but I think when you start getting very close on money, you're talking about a player's career. Are you going to run a three, four, four, three? Am I going to be a wide end, a closed end? Are we going to play man-free coverage? Are we going to play bump and run? What are we going to do? And you can't have those that dialogue. And and 
when I said it was the, the quote awful, I'm speaking on behalf of the player as well because I, they're the ones that have told me. So I can't believe we can't talk because I want to know how are you going to use me? And you know, Marvin Jones signed with us, and a lot of that was because he knew Daryl Bevel. Uh, he was with him at Detroit, and he had other right. options, of course, but. He's a very intelligent player. He's at the point of his career. He's got to make the right decision. And he made that decision because his relationship with Bevel. I'm not sure that happens without him. You know, I wonder also, uh, you know, especially because you haven't been in the NFL and some of the guys that you're scouting and trying to get are guys you quite literally have never met before. How did you handle that aspect of it? what what sort of remedies did you use in you know instead of being able to sit down and talk to them uh if you notice the people we've signed either had some relationship with members of our coaching staff you know we signed uh, a corner from uh shack from uh seattle we have a special teams coordinator and an offense coordinator from there um and i also knew a player that coached played with him in high school and grew up with him and and so we, we did as much homework and I, I put, I don't want to say put a lot of pressure, but I really, I don't want people, you know, coming in this locker room that we don't at least have an idea what they're all about. Um, and that's going to be very important to me and obviously our coaching staff and organization. So we relied on as much Intel, I called it as, as we could. And the best Intel are former players like, uh, uh, you know, one player uh, from the chargers uh, was a, uh, I asked KJ Hill, I said, tell me about exactly what he's all about. And um, so they, he shared with me what, what he's like in practice and et cetera. Jimmy Johnson told me recently that um, you're a born recruiter and you just really love that aspect of the job. He said when, when we were working on the, uh, you know, the college football shows at Fox, uh, you know, you were, if you were allowed to, you were on the phone or you were talking to coaches, you were doing whatever, but you were always working, uh, you know, in between times at Fox. So I wonder, is that aspect of it not being able to do that kind of like cutting off your, your pinky finger or something? Well, that's, that's pretty drastic, but yeah, I think it's somewhere <laughs> like that. Uh, I just enjoy, you know, I do this for the player. I, I, I love players and I love to see their growth. I want to know their background. I want to have a relationship with their family. I want to get to know them. Uh, if you talk to our former players, that's what everything's all about. When that's taken from you, you're not allowed to do that. I, I shouldn't say taken from it because that will happen. Uh, but to say that I loved recruiting, I did at the time when I had to. But that was a 24-7, especially nowadays. So, I'm, I'm actually like to see that on weekends. I'm not making those 25 recruiting calls I used to have to make. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you two other things about coming to the NFL. And I wonder, did you always see yourself like when you're at Florida having great success, you're at Ohio State having great success, was there one or two moments every year where you would wonder – yeah, I really wonder what it's like in the NFL. I'd really like to do that someday. Sure. That happened quite quite frequently. I went and visited. It was a yearly trip for me that I would go visit NFL camps. I became very close with certain coaches and organizations, and I would go spend time with them and, 
And then the more, you know, the, you know, when I went to Florida, and actually Utah, but Utah, Florida, Ohio State, then we started getting a, a lot of players in the NFL. A lot of times I'd go visit them and I'd talk to them quite frequently. And I was just amazed because if it gave us an edge in whatever, if I was at Ohio State or Florida, I wanted that edge. And guys like Belichick was a guy that became a mentor to me. And I went and visited the Patriots several times. And I would always try to bring something back with me that would help us. And to say that I got something from my friends in the NFL, I got something every time I visit them. So, yeah, I've always been intrigued by it. To say that was an ultimate goal, it, it wasn't. I, I was intrigued by it. Every year I would either get a phone call or I'd think about it, but um, nothing would ever – I never would head in that direction. Um, when you would go visit Belichick, give me an idea of one visit you had Foxborough and you walked away and you said, man, I'm really glad now I have a better feel for X. Well, Tom Brady, I got to witness Tom Brady firsthand and it was the last day of <clears throat> mini camp in June. And I'd been to a few of those and usually people were hat one foot out the door because they just got done with a very long, you know, seven, eight weeks in the off season. And you're talking about the greatest quarterback of all time. And it was Mike Rabel was there. Teddy Bruschi was back in those days. And I was blown away. It was the last day of minicamp. They're in shorts, helmets, and they're doing a two-minute drill. And Tom Brady is treating it like it's the Super Bowl. And he goes down and he scores with, you know, two seconds left to win that scrimmage or whatever they had. And ran around the field like a child who just won the suit. That's how competitive he is. And I went back immediately to my quarterbacks and shared with them that I just watched the greatest of all time, the way you're supposed to practice, the way you're supposed to provide energy to the rest of your team and the way you lead your team. And I was blown away at Tom Brady and the way he performed to practice and the, and the way I went into the offensive meetings with Josh McDaniels and, and Tom Brady and, Tom Brady's actually the one that had the clicker in his hand. I mean, it was a Peter it was amazing. He he was in there running the film, and he had the offense line sitting there, running backs, receivers, and Tom Brady was running the clicker and watching practice film, dissecting the plays with the offense. Think about that for a minute. Yeah. And that's you know you can say he throws a great pass, but uh, people that really understand the game, I mean, there's much more than that that makes him the best of all time. You're going to have a lot of lessons for uh, uh, for whoever your quarterback is this year. You're, I almost said you're going to you're going to have a lot of lessons for Trevor Lawrence this year, but uh, you still got to make that official or do whatever it is you guys are going to do down the stretch. I want to ask you about uh, something you said uh, that I thought was really interesting. You said not this couple weeks ago, not to over dramatize the situation. But this is the most important offseason in the history of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Why did you say that? Well, I think it is. I think uh, our first of our owner said it is. And I have a great relationship with our owner. Our owner wants to win in the worst way. The Jaguars had a nice run as an expansion team with Tom Coughlin. Had some very great players here, Baselli and, and all those guys. And, and then they kind of fell off a little bit. And then in 2017, almost made it to the Super Bowl. And this 904 DeVoe County is starving to win. And it's almost like it aligned up pretty, it, I, I don't want to say perfectly, but you have a lot of draft picks, 11 of them. You have a uh, salary cap, which we addressed a bunch of needs. You know, we didn't maybe sign the, 
big, big name, big money guy because we really couldn't. Uh, but it just aligned. And then you have the number one pick in the draft. So this will set the stage for the Jaguars' future for several years if we do it right. If we don't, which, you know, it's not easy. Obviously, it's not easy. There's a lot of pro- the organizations have struggled. So this is a really important um, decision process for me putting the staff together and then also for how we acquire talent. Over the years, did you find that there was any advantage that you have right now at this moment, seeing that you probably ran into Trevor Lawrence three or four times while you were doing work for Fox? And I wonder, what were your meetings in the last few years like? How well do you know the guy? Uh, Trevor, I, I know okay. I, I can't say I'm that close with him. We've had some phone calls, like we've had other uh, draftable players. Uh, I know his coach very well. I've been uh, close with Dabo Sweeney for many, many years. and I mean, like, really close. Um, and I know Jordan Palmer, the guy that's training him. Uh, out West. So Mm -hmm. I know a lot about Trevor. Uh, I've seen him play live several times. And obviously, like a lot of us, he's he's been on television so much. I I can't say I know him that well, but I know him. What's your opinion of him, not only as a player, but as a person? Uh, He checks all the boxes, you know, and the number one common quality of every great player, not just quarterback, is competitive maniac. He's 34-2, and won a national title as a true freshman and uh, is a winner. And I've seen him up close and in person compete. So um, he, ch- and then uh, character and, you know, he, you know, I seen and I witnessed with my players, when guys get drafted high, a lot of people get in, they have influences in their life. Like, you know, whether it be social media, whether it be other things that really don't pertain to winning. And what I'm really pleased with, and I don't want to say surprise, but him, his agent, his family, they're focused on one thing, and that's he wants to become the best version of himself in the National Football League, which is it's I don't want to say it's just it is somewhat refreshing. What was it like being around him the day up in Clemson where it looked like you were trying to uh, uh, set an NFL record for coach standing closest to a quarterback at a pro day? <laughs> it was great. We unfortunately weren't allowed to talk to him or, you know, I, I was as close as I could. Like I'm that way of practice though. I, I like to be near a quarterback. I like to hear him talk. I like to hear the ball come out of his hand. I like to hear. Uh, Do you really, I, I saw you said that you really can tell something by hearing the ball come out of a quarterback's hand. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The violence that it, uh, the, the snap that the ball comes out, uh, the, the grunt or the, the, the effort with, you know, some guys throw a ball effortless and some people have to really rear back and throw it. Oh, absolutely. How come down here, Peter, someday I'll have you stand there and let you, let me listen. I'll I'll have an average guy throw one and then I'll have him throw it. (laughs) You tell me if you can hear it. All right. I'll do that. I'll definitely do that. Hopefully I'll do it in August of this year. Um, Is there any real mystery that you're picking Trevor Lawrence? Uh, I'd have to say that's the direction we're going and, and, uh, I'll leave that up to the owner when we make that decision official, but I, I'm certainly not stepping out of line that that's certainly the direction we're headed. I want to ask you a little bit now about history and how it 
um, how it reverberates to today. Okay, because when you got this job, I wrote that you retired at age 45, then immediately came back. Then you retired again at age 46. Uh, that was at Florida. And then you went to Ohio State and retired at 54. And I said, and I kind of feel this way, that I wonder, how sure are you personally that this job, you're in it for the long haul? Or could you wake up two or three years from now and say, it's too much, I can't do this? Well, I gave a lot of thought to that. And uh, obviously, this was not a knee-jerk reaction. This is something that I've been studying for um, at least 12 months, you know, starting back in January, uh, studying the roster, studying the lifestyle, studying everything about it. And so I, I've done my due diligence on it. Uh, but I'm committed to Jacksonville. I told that to our owner. Uh, and I'm going to, you know, my job is to make this a better place than it was when we got hired here and do the very best we can. And uh, two months into it, I can't be more pleased with where we're at. Not that it's exactly the same thing, but you realize that the last transcendent college football coach, one of the greatest college football coaches there is, Nick Saban took a job two years into it. He left to go back to college football. You think there's zero chance that that happens? Little chance that yeah, that happens? Zero, zero chance that that uh, happened. But, you know, what, what Coach Saban, uh, you know, went through, I don't know. And, uh, you know, that's Coach Saban's business. You know, I don't, I'm not quite sure. Uh, you know, I, I, at some point I might talk to him about, uh, what yeah. he is. He's a friend of mine and I got great respect for him, but uh, it is different. It's completely different. My mind is set, you know, there's going to be some losses come up, show up here that we're not used to. And I got to say, that's going to be easy. No, that's going to be miserable. I hate losing and we all do. Uh, but the reality is that you're going to lose. Uh, hopefully you win more than you lose, but uh, that that's something that's going to be new to me. And I, I have to get my mind right. I'm working on that. That's one of the things a couple of months ago when you got this job, when I called Jimmy Johnson, I, I asked him about losing. And obviously in his first year, he was one in 15. Ooh. I'll never forget a story he told me the next year. Uh, his last game was either on Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve. And after the game, he had no idea. He just knew that he had to get out of there. And he ended up flying to Miami and checking into the Miami airport Marriott and staying there overnight, either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. And then the next morning or New Year's Eve or New Year, Christmas Eve. And the next morning he went to the Bahamas and just disappeared for like a week. And he just said, I just lose 15 games. It was just hell. And, and I look at your record. I mean, your average college record in 17 years, you were 11 and two. You lost nine games in your last seven years as a coach. I, I don't want to be the harbinger of doom here, but I'll be shocked if you don't lose nine games this year. And so I just wonder, in your mind, how will you be able to accept losing? Well, I'm going to call my friend Jimmy Johnson and get that phone number of the Marriott in the Bahamas. But I rely on my faith and my family. And, you know, I take – I, we all do. It's not I. When you put so much into something and it 
And I have a hard time blaming others. I blame myself. And how can you have done better? That's the wear and tear that I, I'm built that way. You know, I can't, I wish it, you know, at times I wish it wasn't that way. But people who know me and have been in our organizations, I mean, I, I take it right in the jaw when we, you know, not, I don't, that's not easy for me to say it's that player's fault, that player, it's not. Because I always put it right on the coach. And the coach, that's part of the, the sitting in the big chair, you got to handle it. But uh, that that is going to be a challenge for me. I think one of the interesting things when I kind of consider where you were with such successful tenures everywhere you were, I mean, there aren't many people who who have coached football for a long time. You coached in college football for 17 years and never were worse than three games over 500. Your worst year was eight and five. And, and again, obviously, my, my whole question about coaching in the NFL versus coaching in college football is that there are a hundred little things that could come up any day. And it is same way in, same way in college football. But I just wonder, do you sort of look at this as a program building process that maybe it takes two or three years after you get into it and really understand what the whole thing is about? I really don't, you know, and I've shared that with our staff. I think our responsibility is win every game we play or find a way to, it's going to be one game at a time. And, and uh, we're not looking, you know, I think it'll build naturally. When I first went to Bowling Green, I took over a program. I think it was one in 10 and two and nine. And I took the same approach. And that was, you know, our job is to win. When, when we line up and play, I'm not worried about two years from now. These players deserve our very best. We're going to go win this game. If we don't, guess what we're going to try to do the next game? Win that game. It'll never. I don't want people to think like that around here. I don't want to hear, hey, we'll be fine in two years. You know, some of these players don't have two years. And this is a player's organization. This is a player's game. Our players deserve from our owner, from me, from everybody. We are going to try to win this one game we're playing. And then if we do and we're fortunate enough to win one, we're going to try to win the next one. So I, I don't look at it. I never have. Peter looked at it that way. You know, I go to Utah and they were five and seven or something. Our job was to, we're not building, we are, we're building a culture and we're going to build uh, an organization. We're not trying to win down the road. We want to try to win as fast as we can. Two other questions from your, from the recent past. I wonder, what did Shad Khan say to you to really get your juices flowing? I met Sean several years, Shad several years ago. He's an Illinois guy. I'm a Big Ten guy, and we, I can't recall exactly. Then we met, saw each other Super Bowl. We talked several times throughout. But I think, first of all, his personal story is amazing, you know, uh, his, where he's from and how he built an empire. And uh, I just think he's an incredible person. And then I found out his passion for Jacksonville. We share that same passion. And that's because I know Jacksonville. You know, I spent a lot of time here recruiting. My kids would come down here quite often. I'm on the Tim Tebow Foundation. I'm, I'm part of that every year. I think this is an incredible place. I think these people are tough people, blue-collar people that want to win. We share that same uh, opinion. So when you say Shad Khan wants to win badly, uh, I'm sure there's some personal feelings for that. Same with me. But that's second to when you see Jacksonville, Florida, and the opportunity here to go 
you know, I, I've been a part of environments, Salt Lake City, when all of a sudden you start winning games and the place explodes. Bowling Green, not, once again, it's college. But I've been a part of Gainesville, Florida, when all of a sudden the, the world turns upside down and you start winning games. And and that's why that's why I'm doing it. And I can promise you that's why our owner is doing it, because he wants to see Jacksonville as with success. Health-wise and stress, there were a lot of there was a lot of talk. Uh, I forget which uh, time you you left uh, either Florida or Ohio State that the stress had sort of uh, become maybe not overwhelming but a lot. Is that? Do you worry about that now? How are you doing health wise? Sure, in Florida it was stress related. At Ohio State, um, you know, I went seven years and I kind of knew, you know, um, I, down the road I was getting near the end. And plus, I found the right guy. You know, so much of I saw Bob Stoops do it when he found the right, you know, Ohio State's very personal to me. And when I found the right coach in Ryan Day, and he almost left the year before to become head coach, I went to our president, I went to our AD and said, I, I found the right guy. You know, one of the legacy or one of the pieces every leader dreams of is what Bob Stoops and what Urban Meyer did. And that's you find people like Ryan Day and uh, the coach at the Oklahoma uh, and no one loses their job. All the assistant coaches, all the strength staff, the training staff, the infrastructure stays in place and the organization just continues to thrive. That's everybody's dream. And so that's what happened at Ohio State. It's Ohio State, I didn't, I didn't have the stress-related issues. And I had some health-related uh, uh, arachnoid cyst issue I dealt with at surgery in 14 and some stuff. But I, I worked through that pretty well. Um, so as you sit here right now and you basically consider, uh, I'm sure, just the immediate future, I mean, what's your gut feeling about the team you have and how good you can be. I have more of a gut feeling about our staff because I've been around our staff, our players. I'm getting to know some of the guys, but I, it, it wouldn't be fair for me to give it that to you yet. I mean, I we signed, I believe, 13 free agents. I met them after we signed, and we spent, I think, a half hour together, and they were out going about their deal. So I can't – if we talk in after OTAs and all that, I can give you a very educated uh, answer. I can tell you one thing. I love our staff. Our staff is going to – it's a plus two mentality around here, and that's 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 expected of them, and they've answered the bell. Um, what's a what's a what's a plus two mentality? Oh, plus two mentality is something that I've used for years, and it's we ask you to go ten yards, go twelve. We ask you to go five reps, give me seven. We ask you to go two steps past the whistle. I think so many people are taught just give me enough. You know, they see the finish line and they just try to finish there. You know, the difference between winning and losing, one of the most undervalued pieces of athletics is the finish. That's the difference between a touchdown pass and a drop ball. That's the difference between a sack and a sack fumble. It's how hard you finish. We call that the plus two mentality. I remember seeing Jerry Rice probably about two weeks before he retired. He was in Denver Broncos training camp, and uh, he wasn't doing very well. But every time he caught a ball, if he caught it at the tw at his at his own twenty eight, he ran seventy two more yards to the goal line, and I said, "My God, this guy's whatever he is forty one, forty two years old, and he's still doing that." Maybe uh, he he'd probably be a good fit on your team. Well, you look last year and in the NFL. That's one thing I have to get used to too: is that fifty percent of the games finish on the last drive. 
Yeah. Can you tell me any greater example that I think we lost uh, six games last year by four points? That's the whole in my mind. You know, you don't blame players. You don't blame coaches. You blame the finish. And so it's got to become part of your DNA because I've seen the great, the great ones, the great players, the great teams, they know how to finish. Two last things. What did you learn from uh, your experience with Chris Doyle, uh, the Iowa strength coach who you hired as director of sports performance after he had some sordid uh, stories at Iowa and you parted ways 24 hours later? What did that teach you? Yeah, I, I'd learned, uh, well, first, I'd known him for a long time. Uh, I did our due diligence on that. But the one thing that uh, I've made a self-promise and promise to, if it's a distraction, and it was the right thing for Chris to resign and move on because it became a distraction to our team. And uh, anything that's a distraction to our team, I want to make sure we avoid. Finally, uh you know, I think one of the things about the NFL, as opposed to college football, is that everyone, every year, is drawn to the middle. There's no team. To me, I mean, look, I've covered the NFL now for uh, 36 years, and I've never seen anything like the Patriots. And I'm not convinced that there will ever, I, I think there probably will never be another team like the Patriots because you think how great the Steelers were. That was, a, that was a six or eight year run of greatness or how great the 49ers were, you know, 10 or 12 years. For the Patriots to be really, really good for two decades is crazy in this league where everything is designed to make the great team not so great anymore. So uh, when I was thinking about what I wanted to ask you and what I wanted to talk to you about, that's really the thing. How do you how do you beat that? How do you how do you beat Roger Goodell and the owners and all the co you know basically trying to make sure that the one in fifteen team is eight and eight next year and the fifteen and one team is eight and eight next year? Well, I actually studied that quite quite a bit, and I I asked that same question to the head coach there many many times, and it came back to me, and that's why I'm such a believer in culture. You know, culture survives. Culture survives injuries to players, transition to players, transition to staff. And Coach Belichick's the best I've ever witnessed at it. You know, there's a Patriot way. There's a Patriot culture there. It's not for everybody. As a matter of fact, I've heard them criticize, too, that this is the, that's fine. You know, that's his way of doing it. And that's the Patriot way. And it's been extremely successful. Uh, so I, I'm a firm believer. I learned so much from my first met him with uh, – my Utah days and Florida days, and I'd like to think that was what made us sustainable all the years. That, yeah, we didn't, you know, you can say, well, college, you know, at Florida, Ohio State, you know, you have better players than most, but it's, it's also you have to win every game you play. You know, you're in March Madness at Ohio State. You can't lose one <laughs> game or it's a failure. And we got to that point at Florida, you lose one game. I remember we went 14-1 and one year, 13-1, and one, and, I hear people saying, you know, hey, we'll get them next year. And, you know, that, that was a tough year this year, Coach, and we'll be right. I'm saying, my gosh. <laughs> you know, those other teams have scholarships too. So, you know, so I I, I think, and I, I don't think, I know this. The thing that made the Patriots so strong is the culture that Bill Belichick and Mr. Kraft built in that organization. Quarterback helped too. <laughs> part of that culture, yeah. I, I, I thought it was really interesting 
you know, when you got the job that, you know, so many people who you knew from college, uh, from all your college stops, you know, kind of not only helped you recruiting, but sort of reached out and wanted to help. That had to, that had to be a pretty good feeling for you. Oh, it's great. I wish I could take a bunch of them want to come here and play. And unfortunately, contracts get in the way of that stuff. And, you know, I'd love to have, if I could build our all-star team from some of our former players, can you imagine what that would look like? Unfortunately, can't do that. And I have to look across the sideline about a bunch of them. But uh, I've, I've been, I've been the, one of the luckiest coaches in the history of the game to see some of the players that we've got to coach and see how about the success they've had at the next level. I am so proud of that for those guys. You know, it was really one of the most fun stories I covered in recent years when Tim Tebow got drafted in Denver. And uh, I remember going out there a lot that first year because it was Tebow mania. And, and I, he used to work to exhaustion because Josh McDaniels, who was the coach then, you know, wanted him to change a little bit about his throwing motion. And I remember everybody would be long gone. It would be 6.15, you know, in, in training camp. Everybody would be long gone. And all Tebow wanted to do was do things perfectly. And I always thought it was such, a, you know, look, he's going to go on and do incredible things with his life. But I always thought it was really sad that he'll be viewed as sort of an NFL washout. And, you know, because anybody, anybody who works as hard as he did uh, and does some of the things he did, I, I really, I, I really selfishly really wanted to see him uh, have more success in the NFL. Yeah, I, I've had other players, you know, Tim and other players you see um, that are work. Tim is a very unique, one of the, the hardest working, probably the hardest working guy I've ever been around. But I think everybody has to realize, too, when you get to this level, you're, there's greatness everywhere. Yeah, you know, there you don't have that team that you're picked to win by three touchdowns over, and everybody you go against is the best player. That's why, you know, I, I you maybe have heard me say that when the fans or the media or even coaches start blaming players and they're bad players, they're not bad players. There's not a bad player in the NFL. Now there's differential of talent, but you have to find out why the player is not playing well. It's too easy to say they're a bad player. Urban Meyer, really appreciate you taking all the time. Good luck uh, in the NFL. Hope you have a very, very long and profitable career. Thanks, Peter. Great to spend time with you. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends. 
Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. And that's it for the Peter King Podcast this week. Hope you enjoyed my conversation uh, with Urban Meyer, the coach of the Jaguars. I thank him for giving me the time. And hope you enjoyed our uh, conversation with uh, Paul Burmeister going back and forth on what these two big trades mean uh, to the top of the NFL draft, which is now it's only a month away. Thanks for joining me this week. We'll be back next week. I have no idea what's going to happen, but we'll bring you some information on it. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks a lot for watching. Have a great week, everyone. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.